You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. I'm certain that Ben was 25 minutes early to that Zoom interview, and uh, we may have left him five minutes waiting, you know, just to see if he would wait. So um, along with Ben reminding us that it's March, it is, uh, it's also Monday. You know what makes Monday better? There is an Eagle Day on Wednesday. Yeah? <laughs> Are you fans of Eagle Days this, this, this semester? Yes, they are giving us hope. They are breaking up the week. You are surviving and thriving thanks to Eagle Days. Well, along with my uh, three kids, we have more kids at our house this week. Uh, So I want to show you a picture. This is Briley, the family dog, and uh, puppies were born three weeks ago. So these are uh, the center of action at our house. And um, before these puppies were born, Briley was pregnant for 62 days. In case you didn't know a dog's gestation, it's exactly two months. And um, a dog pregnancy creates uh, an intense power of smell, uh, as if they don't smell intensely already. So uh, it also creates some crazy cravings. Um, The book there on the bottom that Briley went after is a Greek concordance for the New Testament. Then you can see uh, Luther's catechism uh, that she went after. And the book in the middle is a 19th century uh, college revival book that she also uh, attempted to devour. So I can't explain all the reasons that Briley ate these books, but let's agree that she has some intense scholarly taste. So here are the puppies at three weeks old. Um, I mean, you you get the real picture of what a dog pile looks like. And um, They are obviously, thanks to their mom and her appetite growing in stature and wisdom. So these puppies' names that my kids uh, kind of fought over for a few days are Jude, Jazzy, Justice, Juno, and Journey. Those are uh, the puppies of the Hasloff house. So can you imagine uh, how smart these puppies are? are going to be. One of them will surely one day arrive with this look since their mom has set their course for their future. After they're weaned, obviously they will be the first class of prodigy puppies at Asbury University. They're on their way. So today's message is going to come from James chapter 3. If you've been connecting with gather in your res hall or connecting with the commuter gather, then uh, you've already been a part of digging into James and this book that's full of convictions. Uh, Tonight's gather and uh, tomorrow's commuter gather will be stepping into uh, 
the first of the next six weeks that are remaining in the book of James. So let's look at our scripture. And if you're following along in a Bible or on a Bible app, we're in James chapter 3, verse 1. Dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. Indeed, we all make many mistakes, for if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. We can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth. And a small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though the winds are strong. In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches. But a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. And among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness, corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It is restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. And so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. Does a spring of water bubble out of both fresh water and bitter water? Does a fig tree produce olives or a grapevine produce figs? No, and you can't draw fresh water from a salty spring. Pray with me. Father, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Lord, this morning we pray that your word would gain a more eternal grasp on us and transform us. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. So James the tongue cranks out words, words that bless, words that curse. And tongues have this source that determines if they bless or curse, a stream or a spring. And James closes the passage with this contrast between a freshwater spring or a saltwater spring. For our family dog, Briley, her hunger, where her nose took her, her desire compelled her to go after old books. James' illustration is similar and says, what stream are you drinking from? Where do your roots go down? It was in Augustine's Easter sermon that he declares we are what we receive. We are what we take in. In a quite profound way, we are what we eat. And what exactly was Augustine driving at? What was the full point of his message in that Easter sermon? 
He was stating that in the Eucharist, we become and indeed we are what we receive. At the Lord's table, then we become and we are what we receive, the body and the blood of Christ. So let's back up uh, to the beginning of James and to this passage about the taming of the tongue. When James essentially begins by saying that it is uncontrolled. For if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. No matter how many times you might have read this passage or heard this preached, we can't miss the powerful assertion that James is making that we're driven by our tongues, that it drives the direction we go. The tongue makes grand speeches. A small spark can set a great forest on fire. James makes the case that the tongue is uncontrolled. As we live in a culture with blistering words, with mean jabs and foul exchanges, we constantly have to ask ourselves, is what we speak different than what we take in around us? In Friday's chapel, Dr. Brown stated this, the very word culture comes from the root word cultus, which involves being shaped by worship. It's a word about worship, the object of devotion. When it comes to formation, we would say that culture catechizes us. It, its goal is to shape a certain set of values in us. Any culture is shaping what is important to that society. When the church has approached culture on culture's terms with its battle tactics, the church has failed. When followers of Jesus approach culture by loving their neighbor, then we are living in sync with who Christ called us to be and how Christ called us to live. Besides being uncontrolled, James is saying that the tongue is on fire. This illustration gets very vivid. A flame of fire, a whole world of wickedness, corrupting the entire body, setting your whole life on fire, set on fire by hell itself. Can you imagine that the tongue could produce a, a tiny spark that could burn 4.2 million acres of land in California? That was the fires of 2020. It was 10,000 fires that burned across California. It burned 4% of the state's land. That is about 6,500 square miles. And if you 
can imagine one Californian tongue doing so much damage. In Australia, you remember those fires that were happening back when the pandemic started? It was like the fires of 2019 and 2020. They burned 10 times more land, 72,000 square miles, 46 million acres were burned in Australia. The natural disasters of the last two years, they make this imagery come to life. Because you know what you can do next? Imagine the words that were spoken in 2020. They were words during a presidential election. They included opinions about racial injustices that were thick in our country. Those two topics were driven by a cultural tongue that could set ablaze all of California, that could set ablaze all of Australia, and probably much more. As we think about the lens of James 3 for a moment, what if the 2020 election year was less about who you voted for and more about how you spoke, about the issues and the people who represented the issues and how followers of Jesus spoke about those things and about those people. We can hear a ton of practical wisdom from the mentor of our namesake. Francis Asbury had the hands of John Wesley laid upon him and commissioned him and ordained him to come to the United States. And James' teaching on how we speak is what Wesley would have called holy tempers, that God wants to shape our tempers to be holy. And John Wesley was this kind of practical preacher. He was what we called a practical theologian, that Scripture always came down to everyday life, everyday decisions, everyday order in society. And since 90% of you had a chance to vote in your first ever presidential election that was just four months ago, think back on the rhetoric. What did you speak and what did... What did you hear in social media? What did, the, what did you say about the opposing person or the opposing viewpoint? What did you hear others say about your viewpoint or about the way you were voting? John Wesley, 250 years ago, he wrote about going in to an election. And he wrote this in his journal. I met those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election. And I advised them to vote without fee or reward for the person that they judged most worthy, to speak no evil of the person they voted against, and to take care of 
that their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. Those are words from 250 years ago. And maybe politics are not a temptation for you. Maybe they're not the most loaded words around you. Maybe the loaded words around you have to do with sexuality or have to do with sexual minorities or have to do with racism. Maybe those are the most loaded words around you or some other off-the-radar topic that is loaded with words. The tongue is on fire, and when our words are at their worst, James may say it's likely because we've placed ourselves in the place of God. It's in James 4, 11 and 12 that he continues to bring convicting words. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them, speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and one judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? What do we do when the Holy Spirit reveals to us how much our tongue has been on fire? How much our words have carried judgment, like I'm right, you're wrong. I speak for truth. You are obviously on the side of falsehood. I'm coming from a place of reason, and you're a lunatic. Where do we find victory over a tongue that's on fire? James has illustrated that it's uncontrolled, that it's on fire, and even that it's undefeated. The message paraphrase of verse 7, this is scary. You can tame a tiger, but you can't tame a tongue. It's never been done. The Greek word used for tame is the same word that's used in Mark chapter 5, when Jesus had an encounter with a possessed man. A demon-possessed man came out of the tombs to meet Jesus. He broke the shackles apart, and no one could subdue him. No one could tame him. The tongue is as untamable as a demon-possessed man. When it comes to battle strategy, Richard Foster tells a great story on how to bring discipline to our mouth. Abbot Macarius was a desert father who renounced speech in order to learn compassion. So Abbot Macarius said to people in his church, brothers, flee. And they were confused. One of them asked, how can we flee further than this? We're in the desert. 
And Macarius placed his finger to his mouth and he said, flee from this. And he called them to solitude. Can Christians choosing to practice silence develop greater compassion? When we unplug in multiple ways from that which we hear and take in, can we be shaped differently? If the tongue is uncontrolled, on fire, and undefeated, where do we go to bring it under control? Jesus gave understanding to his brother James by what he spoke in Matthew chapter 12. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The tongue is controlled when the heart belongs to Jesus, when we've submitted ourselves to who he is. Sometimes the tongue praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. Blessing plus cursing out of the same mouth, James says, this is not right. It's J.D. Walt in a little book that he wrote for Seedbed about this small New Testament book. What James is driving at is that a person who blesses God and curses people is not actually blessing God. That's a harsh way for us to reflect. It's only a heart change, a change and what is being fed to the deepest parts of who we are, our mind and our heart, that can bring transformation to our words. And according to Ephesians 4.29 in the message, the mouth is no longer on fire when nothing foul or dirty comes out of your mouth. Saying only what helps each word being a gift. That Ephesians 4 would shape who we are as men and women of God. That each word we speak is a gift. The Holy Spirit is the only power that can defeat and tame the tongue. You may feel that you've had more curses spoken over you than a person should experience or hear. And whatever our own experiences are, we come to the place where we hear a word that is different. That the Holy Spirit of God can do something completely redeeming in us and in our lives and make us people of blessing. The true vast, the true fast that's spoken about in Isaiah 58 is an appropriate passage for us in Lent. It gives this laser focus to repentance. And Isaiah's words turn us towards Christ. 
If you do away with oppression, with pointing fingers and malicious talk, and spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness. And your night will become like noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. It's in the beginning. You know the words in Genesis that God said, let there be light. And words took on being. They took on shape. They became animated. They took on existence. And this principle has been alive ever since. And after Genesis 1 and 2, in Genesis 3, we see how words can take on a twisted kind of existence. When the serpent said, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? We see what false words sound like when a lie was modeled and when words flow from salt water. And then redemption becomes very visible in John chapter 1. The most powerful word became hope with skin on. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And this word desires to make his dwelling in us. The hope for the tongue is not far away, according to the words of Deuteronomy 30. It's not too hard for you. The word is very near you. It is in your mouth and it's in your heart for you to observe. I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life that you may live, that people coming after you may live, that we may carry and live in the gift of blessing to be a blessing. Let's pray together. Father, make us different. Lord Jesus, forgive us where our words have brought injury or pain and failed to bless others made in your image. Holy Spirit, be our source and shape us to be people of compassion, quick to listen, and slow to speak. Father, give us words that make alive your love to us and your love to the world. Lord, form your words in us, words that heal, that speak of your salvation, 
and words that give grace that we may love as we have been loved. This we ask, Jesus, in your name. Amen.